Hello, internet friends. Oh, I missed you. Did you miss me? I guess I guess me saying I missed you doesn't make sense because I was still here. But man, I I missed sounding right. <laughs> uh, we've fallen apart in the first like fifteen seconds of this. I just wanted to get that out of the way. Hello, internet friends, and welcome to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm your host, Andy Bowell. And I'm your other host, Alex Ruiz, and we're here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live our lives in that, your lives, excuse me, in that order. And um, I feel, Andy, that uh, your wonderful wife, Mariah, deserves a shout out and maybe like uh, an associate producer credit because she's the only reason that you sound as good as you do right now. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed, she does. She is darling and dear and has uh graciously allowed me to start recording on her laptop because as we realized last time mine just i'm going to be dual screening it myself from now on because my own my old laptop is only now suitable for research purposes so i will now be recording and editing on this delightful not nine-year-old laptop well I am I am quite excited for you. Uh, <laughs> you've got two podcasts to record, and it's important that you've got the equipment. Absolutely, and and we're not big enough for a sponsorship deal yet. Wink, wink. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> Still working on getting Canopy to like hit us up. You know. <laughs> yeah. Although, by the way, I don't think... Have we talked about your other podcast? We yet? have not formally talked about my other show on this one. No. Would uh, you like to uh, promo that a touch? Absolutely. In our douchebag buffer? Yeah. <laughs> right. So, uh, for anyone who isn't in the know, which I, I was actually looking at the analytics the other day, and statistically is a few of you, um, I am now doing a film review podcast called Cult Fiction with the lovely and talented Stephanie Johnson, who you will remember from our Robin Williams episode, and you will also remember as Alex's wife. <laughs> she has credentials other than being she my wife. She absolutely does. That. That she yeah. does. That's why I started with the uh, Robin Williams callback. Uh, but no, it's, it's a great amount of fun. We watch cult movies and... Uh, review them, examine them in a modern lens and figure out why they're problematic, decide whether or not they actually deserve to be fondly remembered as cults. And uh, yeah, it's it's live now as of recording. It's been out for uh, two months, give or take. And we're really excited with the project. So that is Cult Fiction. You can find it on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. Or, I mean we're doing pretty good at cross promoting and LHR is blogging cult fiction stuff and cult fiction is retweeting LHR stuff. So you should have seen it by now, but if you didn't, I've got another podcast. Yeah. It's wonderful. Stephanie is delightful and a, uh, an amazing co-host. I'm, I'm very lucky to have the both of you. And she completely uh, yeah. blows me out of the water. I, so. I, I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> yeah. But um, I'm trying to think like at time of recording, you guys have done your, my neighbor Totoro episode, mm -hmm. your toxic Avenger episode, which is a delight. Um, I think by the time this comes out, your life of Brian will have already come out. And I think uh, the day that this drops, I think the next day you guys have uh, showgirls. 
I think you're right. Yeah. So. So yeah. Little uh, little primer of the kind of movies we watch. It's it's randomly selected. So you find out what we're watching next time at the end of each episode. And yeah, I mean it's it's really just a delight. And you know, I uh, I got so excited with this podcast. I went out and started another one, which may or may not have been foolish, but I'm enjoying the process so far. So yeah. Uh, I mean, y'all, y'all do good work. It's more niche than this podcast. And I think that's a good thing. Uh, and it's, you're kind of a different person on that one. I think, uh, or at least you fulfill a different role because, It seems like you and Stephanie are, like, I feel like you and I have a comfortable back and forth of you being a very, like, a zero fail ish kindly, (laughs) uh, like, like, dear-hearted person, and I am the crotchety, crowley, I don't know, rage monster? Rage monster's good, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, who, and, 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 but your dynamic with Stephanie is you're both... You're both such Hufflepuffs that, <laughs> I mean, the best thing is when you guys have a terrible movie and you're just like, yeah, no, we both hated this movie. And it's like, you, you're you such sweet people in general that you you get to that point where you watch Toxic Avenger and you just go, there's nothing redeemable about this. I know you've got other movies on the horizon that you've recorded that are even less redeemable than Toxic Avenger somehow, but... I'm thinking of one in particular. Yeah, right. Which no, no spoilers. Uh, you'll you guys will have to stream and listen and subscribe to find out. But even if you don't watch the movies, they are fantastic podcasts. I highly recommend them. Thank you, sir. Thank you, thank you. Get thee behind me, foul fiend! After you. Yeah, I like I like blowing your work while we're on this podcast. <laughs> well, we've we've blown this show so many. I feel like it's it's only fair we blow my other new show. Well, it's also it's always funny because like we'll talk about making this podcast on this podcast, and now I'm talking about you guys making another podcast on this podcast. You know, and... you joke, but I know for a fact there's at least one podcast about podcasting. It's it's very Ouroborosian. Uh, so we're we're getting there. I mean, there's movie. Look, there's movies about making movies. True. So <laughs> how many how many ugh, how many guys in your MFA straight white male writers write novels where the main character is a straight white male novelist trying to write their first novel? Like it, it's a market. And it's a terrible market, and it shouldn't <laughs> exist. Now, that's uh, that's talk uh, for a, a hate segment, and you don't have the hate today, so uh, I'm going to have to ask you to stop. But I would love to hear about something you love. For those of you who don't know, here on Love-Hate Relationship, we, uh, we like to talk about three different things every episode. Something one of us loves, something one of us hates, and we take one of your relationship questions and do our damnedest at it. And yeah, so this week it's your love, buddy. What's up? Yeah, uh, so speaking of straight <laughs> white dudes... Uh... <laughs> We really need to, I, I, I think I need to do a better job of representation when we talk about individual people, but that day will not be today, Andrew and Richard. So, my love for today is uh, 
director, actor, podcaster, filmmaker, writer, comic book writer, uh, jack of numerous trades, uh, the indelible Kevin Smith. So, as per... You know, last time we talked about a filmmaker, I think it was you tossing us Guillermo del Toro. And I thought, okay, I'm, I need to talk about not music topics for a minute, because I've been saturating that one. Uh, you're welcome to talk about music topics, but I'm going to try and moratorium myself for at least a couple of episodes. So, I thought I'd talk about a filmmaker, Andy. And as per usual, I want to in- intro this by throwing you a straightforward question. I named a few of the things Kevin Smith has done. I want to ask you, and I, I have a guess as to where you're going to go with this, but I want to ask you, what do you best know Kevin Smith yeah so the short answer is i best know him as a filmmaker first and foremost but when i think of kevin smith i i I got to think about how i first was introduced to kevin smith which i think was like a comedy central daytime rerun of the movie dogma And that was how I was introduced to Silent Bob, which is Kevin Smith's character in some of his movies, in his comedy work at least. And, you know, become vaguely aware that there is a filmmaker out there named Kevin Smith, and he's the Jay and Silent Bob guy, and he writes comedies. And then somehow late middle school ish i i got a subscription to wizard magazine which used to be like the it magazine for comic book news and stuff before the internet really took that over and i remember seeing like a big promo poster that was saying kevin smith was going to be writing daredevil and thinking to myself what that's weird okay whatever i don't know if i'll be reading that issue of daredevil but um he wrote daredevil and then he started writing batman and or i think he wrote batman he wrote something anyway he, mm-hmm. okay yeah he yeah, yeah. He, he was Definitely. he was the funny comedy movie guy who all of a sudden was writing serious dark gritty comic books and that is my like mm-hmm. That is what I know Kevin Smith as. Okay. And that is completely legitimate. Uh, I actually have that Daredevil book that he wrote uh, sitting on my bookshelf not ten feet away from me right now. Uh, That is his Guardian Devil run, which I believe was illustrated by Joe Casada, And is... It's a it's different for a Daredevil comic, but it is very Kevin Smith in that it is (laughs) super wordy. But uh, it's 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 delightful. Uh, no, I appreciate that that idea of filmmaker and then comic book writer. Uh, that's a lot of how I understood him for a long time. I think that for especially young English speaking uh, men of a certain age, I think actually around our age bracket, maybe a little bit younger and a little bit older those Kevin Smith movies, and especially those Kevin Smith movies getting rerun on Comedy Central right. 900 times, 
uh, were highly formative. Like it was it Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, which is arguably one of Kevin Smith's like like less. I, I don't even want to call it a stupider movie. Um, it's just one that kind of, uh, in the conversation of his earlier works, gets uh, kind of tossed around as the least, I don't know, least artistic, quote-unquote, uh, even though there's some really interesting say, cool it's, satire it's almost, there. It's kind of the uh, most meta, so I would argue its artistic merit is there. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's not lacking in artistic merit. It just doesn't get the respect that, say, Chasing Amy or Clerks do. Or even uh, the same kind of cult love that, like, Mallrats gets. Uh, but it is it is still definitely, like, very smart. And for folks who were coming up, who were of a certain age when that movie came out... We quoted that movie nonstop at one another. Like we quoted that movie like it was The Simpsons to folks just a few years older than us. And I, for a lot of people, Kevin Smith kind of ends there. He ends as the guy who did the Jay and Silent Bob movies, and nobody thinks about him anymore. And I'm really interested in talking about not just where his film career went after that but also all of the other stuff that he's done. So thank you for your answer. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little bit of just early intro info, and then I kind of want to open this up into a discussion sure. of his work. And I mean his work overall. So uh, Kevin Patrick Smith was born on August 2nd, 1970, in Red Bank, New Jersey, to Grace and Donald Smith, a homemaker and a postal worker, respectively. He was the youngest of three children, raised in a Catholic suburban household. He talks a lot about being an altar boy as a kid uh, and what his Catholic upbringing did for him. Uh, and by his own admission, he says that his upbringing was pretty much marked by church services, 70s comic books and TV, and of course, going to see movies. Uh, following stints at the New School and Vancouver Film School, neither of which uh, he graduated from. He moved back to New Jersey and took his old job back as a convenience store clerk in Leonardo. There, he wrote the script for Clerks, maxed out a dozen credit cards, and sold his prized comic book collection to raise the requisite $25,575 that he needed in order to make the movie. He cast his friends and family, and he shot the whole thing in one 21-day stretch, where he was working at the convenience store during the day and then filming it at night. After successfully getting the movie to Cannes, can Con? You know, I, I said this absolutely wrong on a recording for Cult Fiction. I, I believe it is Con. I would, I would call it Cannes! But uh, I'm wrong. It's Khan. <laughs> Canis. Canes. After, get, after successfully getting it to that one movie festival that all of us know, uh, it was picked up by Harvey Weinstein. Uh, we'll talk about that more later. Uh, and became a critical darling. And then launched a film career for him, which has had mixed success financially, Less mixed success, although still mixed success critically, and an extremely dedicated mm. cult following. 
and so while he's been up and down with directing and writing movies, um, he suggested he'd retire from directing more than once and uh, that he'd be leaving the industry, coming back, um, and now trying to get films off the ground that he just never has been able to. Uh, he has also managed to parlay his, his fame into other ventures, uh, specifically writing some decent, if wordy, comic book runs, uh, opening a comic book store in Red Bank, uh, which is run by his friends and had an AMC uh, reality show that was basically a ripoff of Pawn yeah. Stars yep, yep. Uh, about it, which I watched a few seasons of. It, it was fun. It was nice. There's, I've, I've, re- I've watched shittier reality TV show and um our tv shows and to find out about those just watch our episode where we talked about paradise hotel uh and um most most important to my relationship to his work now he's a prolific podcaster he has a podcast network uh the smodco network which started off with just his podcast smodcast which is him and his uh longtime collaborator and producer scott Mosier. Uh, and also Tell Him Steve Dave, which was a podcast started by two of his friends. Uh, and from those two, there have been, God, dozens of other podcasts. Some limited, some uh, that have kind of gone defunct, and some that are honestly still going weekly to this day. And I'm really, really... The, the, the thing that I love most about Kevin Smith is... The man has, and this is what I kind of wanted to get Mm -hmm. into, apart from just being so involved in so many mediums, like he is a consummate nerd in a lot of ways, I've always appreciated that he's a fan, and I think that that is one of the things that has always come through most explicitly in a lot of his work. If you watch a movie like Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, and you look at the casting, for instance. He gets Mark friggin' Hamill to put on a goofy-ass costume and play a villain for two scenes. Because he was essentially told by the filmmakers, okay, who would you want in this scene? And I guess he had a connect through uh, Nathan Hamill, Mark Hamill's son, in that he was a fan, and so when they approached Mark Hamill about, like, when the producers approached Mark Hamill about doing this, he was like, I don't know anything about this guy. I don't know anything about this movie, anything about this work. And Nathan Hamill uh, was like, do the movie. He's great. He's fantastic. I know you're going to wear a silly costume and all of this, but just do it. Now, you and your sidekick are finally in the grasp of that's because he was a fan Carrie Fisher was in that movie because he's a fan you know he did he did a documentary for Prince that is still in Prince's vault and will probably never be released but he agreed to do it because he's a fan when he's on these podcasts and he's talking about all he talks about loving you know comic books and you know class but but also he talks about loving classics of cinema you know, he'll reference Jim Jarmusch movies that I've never heard of when he's just talking about filmmaking. But he'll also talk about how much he loved fucking Buckaroo Bonsai as a kid and how much of an influence that has been on him. He, he he's, he's this 
really devoted fan of so many things and he puts it all into his work and that has always interested me and drawn me to him in a really definitive way um so yeah that's kind of my rundown on kevin smith i just wanted to kind of talk about him because i know you're really familiar with a lot of his work and i don't know how familiar you are with his podcasting or any of his other ventures but i wanted to kind of just throw a bunch of info at you and then have a conversation totally and and i think there's a there's a hell of a lot to poke at and play with here i want to lean in on your last point about how he is a fan at heart and 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 i agree with that in a way you know kevin smith kind of lived the dream of so many nerdy ass filmmaker writer what have yous to be like he is a kevin smith is an absolute success story and you know i say live the dream but i think a lot of the people who sit there and dream about being the next kevin smith probably overlook just how hard he had to work you know you you mentioned he sold his comic book collection his prized comic book collection maxed out credit cards i you know i'm a filmmaker and and i've rubbed shoulders with the idea of putting all your chips in to chase your dream and it's scary it's some it's an uncomfortable notion it's it's something that i've backed away from just because it's like i mean it's hard enough just to get through my day-to-day life let alone like put everything i have and and my family has on the line to try and and do a thing and kevin smith did that you know working working yeah days at the convenience store and then shooting nights that's probably the easiest part of it but when did the man have time to sleep he seriously slept he slept all of like an hour a night at times like just taking cat naps where he could Right, and that's still the most doable part. And, and you know, that was, what, 20 years ago? Which was a a different financial landscape, to say the least. Um, mm-hmm. So I bring all this up just to, just to commend the guy. And I wonder just how many, like, neck-bearded film studies majors have have come out since kevin smith made it big and and just sit there and think they're going to be the next one when they're not willing to put in the time i mean i'm looking at his his filmography right now you know it's not extensive but it's it's impressive for like somebody who broke into the industry and i can sit here and say i've heard of every one of his movies um, even Yoga Hosiers, which is this bizarre zombie hockey comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, which was torn apart critically. Right. Uh, yeah. And I, I like that you point out that there are a lot of people who want... He, he is this really unique story. Yeah. And... 
And one of the cool things about how much, how many interviews he's done, how many podcasts he's done, how much he's told this story is the ability to kind of point to all of these little bits and pieces of that story. Like with Clerks, so much has been said about how Clerks came together. Have you ever read the script for Clerks, Andy? Uh, I've not read the script, no. Okay, I'm going to send you the script. The script is fantastic. I have a PDF of it. But, um, you know, a lot of it came down to, I, just in my research, so on, on Kevin Smith's 21st birthday, he went and saw Richard Linkletter's Slacker. Uh, have you ever seen Slacker? No. Okay. It's, I honestly don't think it's that great a movie, but he was really inspired by the fact that Richard Linkletter, who grew up in Austin, Texas, did an entire movie basically filmed outside on the streets of Austin, Texas. And he was like, oh my God, he just did like a hometown movie. It wasn't a big Hollywood production. It's a very small, very intimate, very talky story, but it doesn't have any giant events. It's very much a movie of people in a very particular small place. And he was like, I wonder if I could do that for New Jersey, for the parts of New Jersey where I grew up, that I love, that I am in love with. Um, he took the idea of uh, from Do the Right Thing, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. He loved the idea of doing a whole, telling the story of an entire life in a one-day story. An entire movie that takes place in one day, all of the events of one day, and it's a different day than any other day, but it's also still kind of just a day. You know, you can see this guy coming to learn and if you watch and listen to all the different stories of him making those first few films you see this dude who's just in his like his early to mid 20s learning the art of filmmaking just from the sake of he tried to do the academic thing it didn't work he was a shit student and he's just kind of learning by doing he's learning by watching other more established filmmakers and picking up the do's and don'ts and picking up the inspirations. And that's really fascinating to me that he has, you know, because it's not, his movies don't look like anybody else's. No. You could argue Kevin Smith is, if you're going to, if you're going to believe in auteur theory, um, see our previous episode about auteur theory and all the problems with that. You can, it, there's an argument to be made, though, that Kevin Smith might be an auteur, at least in so much as his movies don't look like anybody else's. They don't sound like anybody else's. The movies that Kevin Smith makes that seem the least like him are the movies like Cop Out, which he directed but did not write and doesn't quite feel good or write, and even he says, like, that's not his best work by this extensive degree. Yeah, I, I think you know? the key is, you, you, know, you say nothing sounds like a Kevin Smith movie, and Cop Out was something he directed, but he didn't write. Like, we, we, we talked about our problems with auteur theory back when we discussed it. I don't know if I would call him a film auteur, but I would say he has a wholly unique voice as a writer and that's the key um which you know leads us into out of movies which i could talk about for 
you know hours with you about but you know he's a writer so that leads us into his comics i'm assuming you know but i i truly don't how did he break into writing comics so he started off by writing the like tie-in comics for clerks and uh chasing dogma which was this jay and silent bob comic that kind of tells the story of their adventures between chasing amy and dogma um, so we started off doing those, and he developed this relationship with a couple of people at the various comic book companies. And honestly, it just came from the fact that, you know, in in Clerks, they talk about Star Wars. And in Mallrats, the character of Brody, who's played by Jason Lee, is a huge comic book fan. And they're just like, oh, whoever wrote this movie clearly knows about comic books and loves comic books. And it kind of just uh, ballooned from there. Uh, I, don't, I, th- I don't know if you know this, but uh, at one point in the 90s, he was hired to write a script for a Superman movie. Was that the... Yeah, 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 yeah. That was the Nick Cage starring Superman vehicle, if I remember right. You know, you know, I don't know if his script was specifically attached to the Nick Cage auditions, but it was that process. Okay. It was Warner Brothers trying to figure out, because he was one of several different people who, over the course of this, ultimately it's what would become Superman Returns. Um, but that thing was in development hell for god 20 years uh and he was he was involved with it for a little while and you know nick cage was at one point attached and did a screen test and kevin smith had a script which i think if you look around on the internet you can find there's a few wonderful youtube break uh youtube discussions of it um mr sunday movies uh over at the weekly planet they they have a great breakdown of it i'll link to that youtube video in the description it's a long video but it's worth your time uh But basically, he made these connections, and then I think, honestly, his... I can't remember if his big break was doing doing Guardian Devil with Joe Quesada, which was... uh, Basically, Marvel wanted to reboot... Not reboot, do like a soft reboot of several adult-ish books, and... Um, they basically wanted to do these limited Marvel Knights quote-unquote storylines with prestige writers. And I know they did Black Panther. I want to say they did Punisher. I think they did a couple others. But one of the kind of the big one of this was, hey, Kevin Smith and Joe Quesada are gonna write Daredevil. And that was Guardian Devil. And from there, he got to write Green Arrow for uh, DC. He did a Spider-Man story. I think he did another Daredevil story. He got to do a limited run with Batman. Um, And it's actually kind of funny because with Batman, there was um, Batman Cacophony and Batman the Widening Gyre, both of which he got his friend Walt Flanagan uh, to illustrate. And there's supposed to be a third one that I don't think has ever come out yet. Um, But that was actually the last kind of Batman publication before the New 52 reboot. Mm, Okay. Like, yeah, like he's talked about this. But basically, yeah, he he made these connections. He got to run. He made these connections in the industry just being known as the film guy who loves comics. 
turn that into writing some comics and then turn that into writing way, way, way more comics. Which again, like literally I'm sure millions of American fanboys, like, like that is the dream. Okay. Uh, write a line. Just, just right now. Just pitch me a line right now. Okay. How about that? That wasn't a line. You just farted. Is there any more pot? Yeah. And and he got I know he got to write a story for Batman 1000. He got to write a little 8-page segment of that. Like he loves he loves comics sure. and he loves writing them. And I'm 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 sure you know, but I mean, look at what he named his daughter. <laughs> yeah, his his daughter's name is Harley Quinn Smith. Which I cannot give any shit to because I have thought about naming my daughter, if I have one, Harley. <laughs> There's actually a really sweet story. His um, his wife, um, who is Harley's mother, uh, when they were dating, uh, they she apparent, there's some story where she was over at his house and she was like, I want to take a bath. Um, can I have something to read? You know, Recommend a comic book to me. I, I'm interested. Um, you're always talking about comic books, and I've never read one, so recommend one. And he was like, let me give her Mad Love. Mm. The trade paperback of Mad Love had just come out. So she sat in a bath and read this entire Paul Dini-written comic book that's basically an orange an origin story for Harley Quinn. And you know, after she got out of the bath, she gave it back to him and was like, I really enjoyed that. You know, Harley Quinn would be a great name for a little girl. And they had just, they had been dating less than a year when she said that. And he was just like, oh my God, I can marry this woman. <laughs> and then they had a daughter and they named her Harley Quinn. So. Well, there you go. Yeah, it's precious. It's really cute. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to close this segment out without talking about just a couple of things. Um, well, but so, so I, I, I want to, I, I don't want to let you do this and then, and then throw one last log on your fire. So I just want to point out oh, yeah, please. the, the man is one of the most famous hockey fans alive. Probably. <laughs> no, he is. And that's true. And, and that's true. He lives in hockey jerseys. He absolutely does and gets them custom made, which is something I don't know of anyone else who does. But, you know, I, I wouldn't pass up an opportunity to bring up my favorite sport. But the man is a devout New Jersey Devils fan, you know, goes with the, the love of being in Jersey. And and yeah, I mean, there there was a, a large segment of his life. I don't know if it's still ongoing where like he would just wear jerseys and literally nothing else and i uh i i at least respect that so i wanted to point out kevin smith notable hockey fan i mean it is still going he is still wearing jerseys constantly he's still photographed in them and everything he's recently lost a ton of weight right. uh he had a heart attack recently went vegan and like finally took his health seriously and he uh just lost a whole bunch of weight and he's still wearing even though he's no longer like anywhere near the size he was he's still wearing these baggy ass hockey jerseys everywhere <laughs> i love that you point that out you know there is a podcast on his network i'm not sure if it's still going on but it's called puck nuts 
and it is literally just a hockey podcast. That, that sounds like it's worth my time. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know how often he's on it. I imagine he, he, he'll appear on any of the podcasts that come on his show occasionally, even if he's not one of the hosts. But I know that that, that is a podcast that has been on his network sure. for a while. Yeah. Um, I wanted to point a cup, just something out uh, with him. I talked about him being a fan. Uh, he also, I don't ever, I don't ever like to put weight behind the notion of just like, these are good celebrities because you never really actually know anything about the lives of these people. But this is someone who talks a lot, who puts out a lot of just his voice, uh, whether that's interviews, whether that's his stand-up comedy, whether that's his podcasts. Uh, and there's a couple of things that he has done in done in ways that I really appreciate as someone who tries to be mindful of what kind of celebrities I'm following and boosting up. I mentioned his deal with Harvey Weinstein. You know, the Weinstein Company and Miramax were the ones who started his career off, who kept him going. And after the Weinstein allegations came out. He didn't comment on it at first. Um, he he very much was like, I don't know what to do here. Um, because he spent years talking, a lot like Tarantino, he spent years talking about how important Weinstein was to his career, how much of a mentor he was, how much he did for him as a filmmaker and an artist. Sure. And then when he learned the extent of everything, he publicly acknowledged and apologized for all of the support and everything he had said about him and kind of kind of had this very public struggle with this person who was so important to me who I cared so much about who did a lot for me um did a lot of truly horrible things and I need to acknowledge that and I need to you know be someone who doesn't just write it off because this is someone who had been good to me. Um, and then beyond that, all of his Weinstein uh, company movie projects, which I think is everything prior to Red State, uh, which is when he started to do horror movies, uh, which is delightful. His turn as a horror movie director, is he hasn't made great movies, but he's made interesting I, movies. I would argue, sure. my, my last tangent, Red State is maybe my favorite Kevin Smith movie. It is excellent. I love it. Red State is solid. It is... I wouldn't call it his best movie, but I, I do enjoy it. Um, I have not seen Yoga Hosers, Tusk is yeah, a good word for it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but anyway, uh, all of the money he makes off of his Weinstein movie, all his residuals, he donates them to a women's charity. He he's just like I don't I don't want this money, and he's not going to stop getting the royalties. Those movies are still making money, but he will not see any money from them. He's choosing to donate them all. He also started a charity called the Wayne Foundation, which uh, helps with victims of sexual slavery. Uh, I think it's based out in South Florida. Okay. He's, you know, 
he seems to put his best foot forward where he can. He was a vocal he was a vocal proponent of the uh, movement that Neil Adams started to try and get old comic book creators who'd been kind of lost in the shuffle of freelance rights, healthcare and residuals, and was a big supporter of the campaign to get Bill Finger credited on Batman comics. He tries to throw his weight around, at least from what I have seen and what I have read and the research I have done, he tries to throw his weight behind good causes. And I fucking appreciate that, especially because he's someone who wouldn't probably need to. But he does. And I listen to a lot of his podcasts. I listen to his voice in my ear a couple times a week, honestly. Uh, the Fat Man Beyond podcast is fantastic, by the way. Um, but, you know, he defers where he needs to defer. He admits when he, he... He admits to having had issues with, you know, old homophobic or less than racially sensitive language he apologizes for that shit he tries to do better in his later work he doesn't stand by how he used to be and i fucking appreciate that in my artists in my tastemakers in my filmmakers in my writers i like that he i i feel like i've watched him evolve over the years and that has endeared him to me greatly as he's just kind of tried to be a better person and he didn't even start off as a bad person, I don't think. He just has gotten better and strived to be better. And I really, really appreciate that. You know, I want to I thank you, man. I think I've always been aware of Kevin Smith, and I mostly overall enjoy his works, but I never really thought of him as somebody that I enjoyed all that much yeah i like his movies yeah he's a huge popular nerd whatever but uh i don't i i I don't love him like you've made it clear you do but i definitely like him more after discussing him with you so good on you man yay yay i put some good (laughs) into the world now do you want to talk about our hate topic Uh, yeah of course i would (laughs) (laughs) so like we yeah we we talk about a love and it's lovely and then we talk about a hate and it's usually not lovely but maybe it's at least eye-opening or interesting and this one is is a little different just in how alex and i talked about it and we're I'm, i'm gonna recount this with you you know, I uh, I talked with you after we'd recorded our last episode about how I, I've got my hate in mind. I've, I've had it in mind for weeks. I want to talk about why I hate the Armenian genocide. And specifically, I hate it because I was unaware it existed until a month ago. And, and my yeah, response go ahead. to you when you told me that. My response to you when you told me that was, well, have you ever actually listened to the lyrics of any System of a Down songs? (laughs) It's time to make the Turkish government pay for their fucking crime! Which I have, but I don't remember Sugar um, referencing genocide. 
and I'm, I'm pulling that one out of my ass. And if there are specific references to the Armenian genocide in the system of down song sugar, then uh, I've been caught with my pants down. <laughs> hmm. I mean, admittedly, I need to, I need to think about my system of a down songs in, in sp- you know, specifically to give you absolute titles of which ones Will do, you, but yeah. I know it's a topic that they tell that they cover on the regular. I, I looked it up after we had discussed, and like they do have a song that is implicitly about the Armenian genocide. It's not like one of their singles, at least I don't think it is. But anyway, the point is, no, I I I'm a System of a Down fan, and I was unaware of the Armenian genocide and I'm worried about any other people who are worried about it as well. And so let me just give some context as to why I say this. I only discovered about this horrible thing because a war movie podcast I listened to religiously called friendly fire it's it's absolutely great you know i say war movie podcast and and people get a certain idea of what that is in our heads it's it's three dudes that are just like me and alex who watch war movies and then talk about them it's it's awesome anyway they watched a 2016 film called the promise which is about the armenian genocide and two of the three hosts of friendly fire were like yeah i didn't know this thing existed until watching this movie and the other one who is somewhat older was like what the hell are you talking about yeah of course of course there was a genocide about this so three out of five podcasters don't know what the armenian genocide was and that's a concerning statistic to me and i would like to do anything i can to educate about what the event is and talk about why not even why i think why clearly it is something that is being swept under the rug of history so i'm i'm all sure sure to summarize what wikipedia has to say the armenian genocide was the systematic execution of 1.5 million armenians most of which living within the ottoman empire over the span of eight years from 1915 to 1923 this included mass deportation and execution of armenian intellectuals and leaders the conscription of young men into military service and finally, literal death marches of the remaining Armenian populace into the Syrian desert. Now, something to make clear. I'm not a fan of any genocides. I historically do not like them or vouch for them. The reason I'm singling out the Armenian genocide is because of the, at least in my perception, relative obscurity compared to things like the Holocaust or what Pol Pot did in Cambodia or even like the American Trail of Tears because there's a reason for it. The Turkish government, which for anyone who needs to know, the Ottoman Empire after World War I turned into Turkey and, you know, a couple of other countries. But the Turkish government, who, you know, are the 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 next line down from the ottoman empire has never formally recognized the genocide 31 countries in the world have 
And bizarrely, 49 of the 50 states have. For reasons I don't understand, Mississippi will not formally recognize the genocide. Maybe they're, you know, holding their cards close to the chest in case Turkey takes over the world. I don't know. And I, for one, welcome our new insect overlords. But what's interesting (laughs) is no standing president has ever formally recognized the Armenian genocide including mm-hmm. Barack Obama who spoke out about it when he was still a senator. So when he's a senator, he talks about this thing as a, as, as a horrible event. And I want to say spoke at like a special Armenian congregation dinner or, or, or something spoke out about it against the Senator becomes president. All of a sudden it doesn't register in his brain or at least not publicly. Mm-hmm. And so, so why, why, why do some countries not recognize this event? And, and why does the president of the United States not recognize this event? Air bases. I didn't find a specific article to link to that references any of this, but they speak about it on friendly fire. And, you know, I've, I've seen it around uh, in my research. Um, the common logic is that, Turkey refuses to acknowledge the genocide and has made it clear that any country that does will not be allowed access to several Turkish air bases and military bases. These specific air bases have been critical to the USA over the past 50 years to be able to properly, you know, bomb the shit out of various Middle Eastern countries and have a strong military presence in that part of the world. So there is a direct through line of our nation's leadership denying the genocide in order to be able to have increased military presence and, you know, bottom line, kill more people. And Mm -hmm. that is to use a colloquialism completely fucked in my opinion. (laughs) Sure. Colloquialism. (laughs) So, I I started this, you know, when we talked last by saying, I'm going to talk about the Armenian genocide. I don't understand how I never knew about this. And you made it clear you, you absolutely did. So if you can think on it and, and tell me like, like when, when did you become aware of the Armenian genocide? Was this just a thing that you somehow were taught in schools in our God awful Florida education system and found out about or, or, like what i was not taught about it in school um honestly i mean part of my okay so my kind of political education started with my parents essentially just kind of being you know my parents are democrats i was raised in a house of democrats everyone votes democratic they were never like you must be a democrat or we will hate you or anything but like we always had kind of center-left politics going on. And then somewhere in late high school, I started reading lefter and lefter and lefter texts. And, you know, you you start with your Marx <laughs> and Engels. Eventually, you know, you, you, read, you read the Red Book of Mao Zedong and you, 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 you get... You get into the Noam Chomsky's and Saul Alinsky's and it just, you know, 
and that was part of my political education was just reading a whole lot and a lot of the more left-leaning political reading I've done would reference the Armenian okay. genocide. To be clear, I'm not an expert on it. I've never sat down and I, I don't think I've ever read an entire book about the Armenian genocide, for instance. Um, I don't know the details of it. Uh, I know that in our, you know, in our education, in our school education, I feel like we're taught granted a very specific not 100 percent uh clear about everything leading up to it version of say the holocaust where it's just it's just kind of presented as world war one happens after world war one things are bad in germany world war two happens they start they start the holocaust and that's kind of the narrative presented to us and that misses a lot of nuances I'll be honest, that has been roughly my understanding of the Armenian Genocide. Um, just as a, this is a thing that happened, here's why it happened, here's kind of the systematic nature of that, here's what the Ottoman Empire was prior to this point, here's what's kind of happened after. And for me, the Armenian Genocide has kind of existed in this same kind of space that, say, Israeli war crimes exist in, where it is a known quantity that certain figures of the left who are, let's say, less beholden to corporate interests than some more center-right entities, I'm talking specifically about, you know, your your center-left media outlets. I feel like I'm getting back on my <laughs> bullshit about the 24-hour <laughs> news cycle, but, like, you're not going to see the Armenian Genocide referenced with any kind of uh, detail in on on an M- on an MSNBC segment, for instance, uh, as you might see on, say, Free Speech TV, with you know Jeremy Scahill and Amy Goodman talking about it, like proper left, proper left journalism and proper left thinkers. So, yeah, I mean, I kind of just learned about it in my in my education about what global politics okay. are. And part of my criticism of the center and of, you know, the American empire is its lack of acknowledgement of it as a concept or not, or as a historical event. Totally. You're right. Uh, air bases are a big factor. Turkey's one of our biggest allies in that region. And, you know, you, you can kind of, I, I don't want to make this an Israel-Palestine thing, but it's a lot of the same kind of thing. We, these are our allies in this area, Israel, Saudi Arabia, Turkey. So we look the other way on a lot of things that they do because there are support there. And we have decided they're the ones we ally ourselves with in the pursuit of those we are not allied with. It, no, does it that does. that your question? It, it, I feel like it, it, I kind it of It absolutely it. does. Because, um, I mean, I was... Also, this is right, exactly. Because <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I I don't know if it's a, a a failing of the system. I don't know if it's a personal failing of my own. You yourself said you had to, you know, very specifically curate what information you were ingesting to become aware of this thing. I did not curate and and search out along the same channels. And I just kind of stumbled across this event 
um, through a movie podcast. Um, and so I don't know. Cause like, I don't want to come across as jingoist, but like, I've always known who Armenians were. The Kardashians, Eric Bogosian, the guys from System of a Down. Like, it's not like I just didn't understand that Armenia existed or that the Armenian people existed. But here's I I feel like I I know most of the other genocides and and not because I seek them out. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, uh, let me ask you, let, let me ask you this. You and I have played Cards Against Humanity on yes. many an occasion. I distinctly remember... I don't distinctly remember it. I remember a Cards Against Humanity game uh, played with some friends. You might have been there. You might not have been. I don't actually remember. But I remember... Uh, for those that, for anyone who's not aware, Cards Against Humanity is basically like apples to apples, but like... Mean, and dirty and X-rated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. offensive. Yeah. Not just dirty, but also, like, offensive in a lot of ways. And so I remember one of the cards uh, in Cards Against Humanity specifically referencing the um, the Hutus and the Tutsis. Do you know who the Hutus and the Tutsis are, Andy? Yes, they are two different African tribes that, and I do get a little sketchy here, either wiped each other out in a war with each other or were systematically wiped out by colonialism. Mm. You're in a good ballpark. Um, anyone who wants to know about the Hutus and Tutsis, look up the Rwandan genocide. It's a whole nother genocide altogether. Totally different genocide. And so basically, I, and I'm and I'm not going to try and get into all of that. But my point is, I was sitting here and I I think I played this card. I don't remember if I played it or someone else played it. And they were like, "That's kind of a fun. Those are kind of funny words. I don't know what they mean though." Mm. And I'm kind of sitting here just like. Uh, is this the part where I explain the Rwandan genocide to my <laughs> friends over wine? Or do I just kind of let myself lose this hand and just kind of go, all right, the night continues, you know? You say that you, like, wh- who slaughtered who? The Hutus or the Tutsis, Andy? Do you know this? I'm not going to be mad at you if you don't. Hutus killed Tutsis. Okay, good job. Did you see that uh, that Don Cheadle movie about this? I have not seen Hotel Rwanda, but it, like as soon as you said the words Rwandan genocide, I was like, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about now. There you go. But that gives you an idea. Your context for Armenians were the Kardashians. Your context for the Rwandan genocide is, as soon as I say Rwanda genocide, you think Hotel Rwanda. A movie which I saw on TV once, I think most of it, and just kind of went, oh, that was pretty good. But that's not my source of education for the Rwandan genocide. Sure. And the people we were with, all of them, actually, I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to remember the group that we were with, but I know all of them at least had bachelors, and I think several of us had master's degrees. And as far as I could tell, I think I was the only one in that space who knew the context for the Rwandan genocide. I don't say that to, like, be shitty and be like, nobody cares about anything important or anything like that. I don't 
blame anyone who doesn't know those details on their own front. I blame the fact that we don't fucking teach this shit. We don't educate the shit. It doesn't get talked about in media. And you have to chase down this information. Absolutely. Because if you're fed that state line, if you're fed that state line, then you're probably thinking the, the then you're probably thinking in terms of, oh, the president isn't acknowledging this. So I guess it probably didn't happen or it's not worth looking into. No, I completely agree. And that leads into kind of my final talking point. I want to talk. So, yes, part of it absolutely is a lack of proper education systematically. And it's like a, a past tense problem. And it's you know it's it's this kind of nebulous thing to to sit here and hate how we're not properly taught about war crimes in schools but i want to close out by by letting everyone be aware that there is a a palpable thing that i can sit here and say i hate and point at and the best way to do that is to talk about this movie the promise which is how i became aware of the armenian genocide in the first place the Promise stars Christian Bale, Charlotte Le Bon, and Oscar Isaac. It came out in 2016. It, it had all of the makings to be like an Oscar bait historical epic. And at least from the review I listened to about it on a podcast, it's a pretty good movie. Now, if you go on IMDb, The Promise has a six on IMDb. Now, say what you will about like systematic rating scales as a whole and the validity of them but generally most people would go oh that got a six oh that must be a massive piece of shit i'm not gonna see that the promise has a six on imdb because there are dozens and dozens and dozens of one and two star reviews citing its historical inaccuracy and it has been proven that 95 percent of these reviews have come out of Turkey. So the thought is the Turkish government refuses to acknowledge this event so much that they blackballed a movie that was made about it because they don't want negative press. Beyond that, it is very important to bring up a man named Kirk Kirkorian, who was a former owner of MGM Studios and produced the movie. He gave a hundred million dollars of his yeah. He gave a hundred million dollars of his own movie to ensure that the promise was produced. And he died before he uh, could see the movie be fully made. But it was kind of his last fuck you to Turkey. Uh, Kurt Kerkorian is an Armenian American. Um, his parents uh, moved out of Armenia. I want to say in 1915 is what I read. So right as all this started happening, I think they just happened to get out, but this man was a owner of MGM and was trying to make this movie since the seventies. He originally wanted Charlton Heston to be the lead. You blow it up. Oh, damn you. God damn you. Right. Um, And for 40 years, he was told, no, you can't make this movie. You can't make this movie. We need the military bases. No, the, the, the Turkish government says, if we make this movie, we, an American movie company, 
they will take it as a personal affront and we will lose our military bases. He finally, like, I, 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 I should have looked this up. I want to say he had cancer and that might be completely inaccurate, but the point is on his deathbed, more or less, he just finally says, no, we're making the movie. Here's a hundred million dollars. Tell this story. This story needs to be told to the people. So they remember we're not teaching it in history classes. So let's make a movie and cast these A-list actors and, you know, make a good movie and it gets completely blackballed by the Turkish government to the point of obscurity. Ah, do you want to, you know, it's funny. I just, I just, so I just pulled it up on Metacritic, which is, uh, the movie Raider that I believe is the best. Um, because rotten tomatoes is tri- is tripped up with its one up and down. IMDB is always tricky with the user scores. The thing I like about Metacritic is that it amalgamates critic reviews and user mm. reviews. And, I mean, so on Metacritic, the critic review is an average of 49 out of 100. And it's interesting because it's a whole, it's a whole lot of, like, medium reviews, a few negative reviews, and several positive reviews. But the positive reviews come from RogerEbert.com, Glenn Kenny, who's a great reviewer. Richard Roper gave this a 4 out of 5. Like, whoa, that's, that's big. Um, you know, the globe, uh, there's, there's some solid reviews here from some people I really respect, but the, but the user scores, there are 108 positive reviews from just Metacritic fans writing in. Right. And like a third of that are mixed or negative. It is definitely, this looks skewed to me in a really weird way. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I, I probably should have found a article that is concrete evidence of this. Um, anybody who, who's further interested, uh, listen to the friendly fire episode about the promise. And they, they do speak on this and, and just the whole thing. Uh, a little more than we have. I, I want to wrap up and get into our question, but you want a tangible thing for me to point at and hate? Uh, what the fuck, Turkey? <laughs> oh, yeah. And I mean, there's a lot we can say at this point about, you know, the... It's a stupid meme at this point to talk about things like fake news, for sure. instance. Or, or post-truth rhetoric, which is some of that, like, dumbass Jordan Peterson nonsense. Uh, but there is... Uh, honestly, if there's any place here where I, I just want to have a little hope, it's in the people doing the work to try and get that information out there. Yeah. You know? it, is, it, it makes total sense for a power structure to... A, deny its past, um, and B, insist on a narrative, an an almost Orwellian narrative, to paint its past in a different way, to deny certain things in order to keep its power. You know, this, this doesn't get, this gets fought with education and with contextualization and with not getting bogged down in what 
what the state is feeding you. You know, there's a reason why journalism is, this is just me getting back on the journalism bullshit, but the reason why good journalism is so important is because it's the only thing that can actually hold, that can speak truth to power the way that you need totally. it. Um, Turkey gets away with it. Absolutely, man. And they get away. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, here, here's my final thing. I, I found the article I should have found before this. Uh, we're going to link it. It's a Washington Post article from April 19th, 2017. And, and here's all you need to hear is, is the first paragraph. The Promise doesn't officially open in theaters until Friday. But on IMDb, a website where people can rate movies, the film has received more than 120,000 ratings half of which are one-star reviews. This is how they got caught. They reviewed the movie before it even came out so that people wouldn't see it. And and the the article goes on to list specifically how this was like a internet troll group on a Turkish message board, like propagating, hey, let's sync this movie. And then the government got behind it and like continued to allow this movie to be, you know, canned. This is a really bizarre example of just controlling information and controlling a narrative, which is, you know, something most of the terrible fascistic empires of human history have done so if you're interested find the promise or listen to the friendly fire review or read this article and do your own education do your own research and keep your eyes out i guess like i i stumbled upon no just like okay so i've told you about this one thing what you know we talked about the hutus and the tutsis what other atrocities out there are widely becoming forgotten in the mind's eye of the public i don't know i just i hope people can be vigilant and not let these awful things fade into history and on that on that note a question yes (laughs) okay andy should i read this one or do you want to you read the last one mostly for audio purposes okay you go for it hi a and a I've got a pet question for you. Yay. (laughs) I recently graduated college and like basically everyone moved back to my parents' house while I work on getting the next part of my life figured out. Here's my issue. My parents got a dog last semester and he and I aren't getting along. He sort of parked in my old bedroom while I was away, and now that I'm back, is really territorial. He growls at me a lot, has peed in my room once, and is generally aggressive. He's really sweet with my parents, though. While I try to walk him or feed him, he doesn't listen or barks or drags me along, but is all nicey-nice with them. I came to them about him when he peed in my room, and they sort of said leave it alone and let them know if it happens again. I don't want to rock the boat, especially since they're letting me stay with them, but this is really affecting me. And this uh, was not uh, given any name. Nope. So how should we address this individual, Andrew? So, Alex, you know, the, the this used to be kind of a joke about, like, person goes off to college, mom and dad rents out their room to, like the milkman or or somebody 
comedic or distasteful in some way. I'm trying to think if there's a specific famous example of you rented out my room, that guy. Either that or I'm trying to remember the main character of Cujo. <laughs> I mean, if you want to go with Cujo, I ain't going to be mad about that. I fucking love Cujo. <laughs> well, then Cujo it is. Cujo. Oh my god, you rabbit. And and just for reference, Cujo is what we're calling our right, listener. Which doesn't actually make sense because Cujo was the dog. <laughs> and I'm looking it up right here, and it looks like the people in the stuck in the car during Cujo, their character names were Donna and Tad. So here's my plan. Uh, Cujo is our listener. The dog's name is Tad, and I'm referring to both of your parents as Donna. Works perfectly. Okay. And that doesn't at all confuse me. <laughs> so, Andy, any initial thoughts for Cujo, being that you uh, are the one of us who has actually had a pet before? Sure. And this is, I mean, I really am reminded of, like mom and dad rent out their son's room and then like the new roommate more than their son. Like this is really bizarre to me from your parents' perspective of, Oh, well we like the new dog. Just like, it's going to be fine. Just like, don't bother him. I love pets and I'm not a parent. I don't know if I would side with my pet over my child. Um, but that doesn't really help you for me to say that your parents are being kind of weird about this. I so the easiest thing, but this is like contextual is if you have another bedroom, maybe, maybe your room is, is Tad's room now. <laughs> and you know you say that you um you know you're you're just trying to figure out the next step and you're getting back on your feet maybe you shack up for you know four to eight months however long it is in the guest bedroom and that's your space now and other than that you know you, you do your thing and and the dog does its own thing and you just try to live your lives separate from each other yeah i mean i'm sorry were you done no yeah yeah you you go ahead and i'll cue up the next bit of advice no yeah yeah that's real helpful you midwestern little okay <laughs> um so Cujo, uh, i think annie's got that's definitely an avenue if you have another bedroom available and you can kind of separate that out part of me kind of wonders if few things and i think my response to you is tethered a little bit to context you know um you know i didn't move out of my parents house when i went to college i stayed in my parents house and i stayed in my parents house for a few years after college uh it just kind of fell out that way uh and it was the best thing for me at the time but it was kind of a different situation you say he you make it sound like you moved to your parents' house for lack of knowing what else you were going to do. 
And that's cool. It's cool that your parents are willing to help you out there. Uh, you've, I like your joke about how, like, basically everyone, you had to move back to your parents' house. Yeah. Uh, which, I mean, real talk, yo. That said, um, if this really is a temporary adjustment, if this is something, if you're planning to just be at your parents' house until you, you know, find a decent job and can move out ASAP, this might be kind of a suck it up and just deal with it for a couple of months and just put your energy into finding that gig and doing that. If that's what you're looking at. Um, I, I imagine there's a very real possibility that that's not the case and that you are possibly going to be here for a year or longer even. Uh, certainly a lot of people are. A lot of people in your situation, fresh college graduates. Congratulations on graduating college, by the yeah, way. Congrats. Uh, yeah, but if this is a long-term situation, I think you need to talk to your parents before anything else. You say that you went to them about this, you know, peeing in your room situation. It sounds like your parents are don't want to take a side on this. Uh, a lot of parents, when their kids are in college, especially if you move out during college, um, a lot of them will get a pet. Because, you know, they want something to nurture. They want something else to help take up some of their time. That's completely normal and valid. Uh, and if they have a good relationship with the dog, awesome. But this is affecting your material life. And if you're going to be here longer than, you know, a few weeks or months, uh, you need an actual solution. First and foremost is probably talking to your parents. Secondly is... Developing some kind of strategy. How do you get a territorial dog more on your side? Bribery, uh, Andy? No, dominance. I mean, you you make it clear to the dog that you are the alpha. Um, you can, if, if the dog pees in your room again, you can, you know, um, stick his face in it. That is one of the more archaic but effective ways to get a dog to stop peeing in the house um the 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 breed and age definitely matter um i i can't think of a dog breed off the top of my head that doesn't deal well with like college age people but there are dog breeds that are specifically not great with children and can you know cause conflict in that way and it sounds like, I mean, if this is a young dog, you can, you can bend its spirit a bit. If it's an older dog, that's definitely going to be, um, harder. I, without, without any more context, I wonder about how much can be done about the dog, especially, I mean, I don't know what uh, displays of dominance you can do that aren't going to be perceived as you bullying your parents' dog in their eyes. If sucking it up isn't an option, then I do agree with Alex that you need to talk to your parents because I'm really not, it's really not sitting well with me that they're not taking a side. It's a dog and I love dogs but it's a dog. You're their child. Um, trying to, like, I, I like what Alex had to say, 
I wonder if you can mount that argument towards your parents in a calm way. Um, cause I'm, I'm worried about you ticking them off, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to say if you pee, if you pee in your room again, like don't get yourself bit or anything, but try to make it clear to the dog. That is not okay. And at the same time, work with your parents. I mean, my final thoughts, I've never had a dog that was, I've never owned a dog that was mean to me. There was, my dad's dog was scared of me and he's since chilled out. Um, I can remember a neighbor's dog as I was a boy that absolutely hated my guts and it was a Scottish terrier and it would like jump in my face and snap and bark at me. And that Scottish terrier never chilled out with me. It never got better. So it is entirely possible that the dog is not going to change its behavior. But your parents can and your parents should, honestly. So I would work on that part of the equation. And if you if you don't feel comfortable like doing that, then figure out a way you're going to show this dog who's boss. And, and good luck to you, Cujo. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be honest with you, Andy. I don't feel comfortable endorsing putting a dog's face in its own piss. Maybe I'm a giant softy. Um, so I won't personally endorse that. You, you take, again, take Andy at his word. He has owned a dog before. I am going to say, just in practical terms, if, until there's a change, you keep the dog out of your room, first and foremost. Close your door. If the dog scratches at the door and your parents are like, let the dog in your room because, you know, he's scratching at the door, just be like, no, I'll fix the fucking door, whatever. It doesn't, I'm not going to let the dog in my room and piss on my stuff, period. That's a stand that should be worth taking. And if your parents have an issue with you keeping your door closed so that the dog doesn't piss in your room, you have the grounds for a deeper conversation. First and foremost, just guard your shit, guard your life. I know it looks like you want to help out with the dog. You say you try and walk it and feed it. Maybe apart from getting it away from your stuff, just try and build a little rapport with it. Um, I, I floated this question by Stephanie, who has owned several dogs, and she suggested stuff like, when your parents, who the dog is super sweet with, uh, are walking the dog, go with them and try and just let the dog see that your parents are cool with you. So that maybe that'll communicate some kind of signal. Um, finding displays of dominance sounds like a smart, reasonable call. Um, definitely do something along that, that vein. What, what you can't do is let your fear of you know, upsetting your parents cause you some misery. You need to take practical steps to protect your well-being and your stuff. And then see what you can do about the dog. And try and get out of there as fast as you can, frankly. Like, that's just in general. 
moving back after college can be kind of hard on the self-esteem, I imagine. And getting yourself out of this situation, even if things end up being good with the dog, will probably do other good things. But yeah, talk to your parents and try and get them on board to at least agree to some kind of practical situation because ignoring it doesn't seem to be helping. So do something. And even if that something doesn't work, come up with another thing. This could be a problem that could bring you and your parents a little closer and maybe ease whatever tensions or guilts or worries or problems you're having or they're having with the situation. It sounds like a tense situation, probably for reasons other than the dog. So use it as an opportunity for that. Try different things, see what works, and try and get them on board with something practical. It can just start with keeping him out of your room. If you can get your parents to agree to let them keep him out of your room or for them to keep him out of your room and be okay with you doing that, that is a practical first step. After a week of that, go for the next step and so on. Do it slow. Is that reasonable? That's very reasonable, especially for a admitted non-dog owner. I think you, you did a really good job there, bud. I will give all credit to my <laughs> previously dog-owning wife, uh, and I accept none of it. So, so <laughs> all right, that's, that's our really show. Um, if you have a relationship question, um, be it with a pet or a loved one or a classmate or really anything that you can have a relationship with, you can send those questions into us and get our perfectly unqualified advice. Uh, and you can send those questions to love, hate relationship podcast at gmail.com where we promise we'll read them. Yep. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Uh, We would also love it, absolutely love it, if you reviewed us on any or even all of those. Uh, You can tweet us at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D with your questions and follow us there to keep up with new episodes. If you want to follow me personally, I'm Andy Bowell. I'm JovoCop2113 on Twitter. And you can now follow my other show, Cult Fiction, at Cult Fiction Cast, also on Twitter. Yeah. You can follow me uh, on both Twitter and Instagram at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z. Thanks for listening, y'all. We appreciate everything. Uh, Andy's audio is back, baby. (laughs) Uh, Tell your enemies.